If you get caught up in arguing with all the cults and all the liberal theologians about all their weird, wacky doctrine, you'll never do what God has called you to do, and that is to help fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study of the second chapter of 2 Timothy, a passage that deals with being useful as a believer in Christ. Yesterday, we were looking at individuals who are far from useful to the body of Christ. I'm talking about false teachers. As we rejoin Pastor Brogy today, we'll note some ways, both negative and positive, that believers are able to spot false teachers. What makes us usable before the Lord as it's unfolded in this metaphor? Well, God uses a clean vessel, and he expounds on that cleanliness in two realms, first in doctrine and then in terms of duty. Notice first, purity of doctrine is essential to being usable for Christ. If God is going to use you, you must be clean or pure in your doctrine. If a man cleanses himself from these things, if we are to be useful to Jesus Christ, there is some sense in which God has called his leadership, his people, to separate himself from dirty vessels who are not faithful to the word of God, who are dishonorable vessels, who swerve from the truth, who are bad workmen. Now, again, I don't think he is calling us to cut ourselves off from nominal Christians. And next time, when we come to chapter 3, Paul will go in-depth on the doctrine of separation. So I want you to wait for that. Certainly, our Lord was a friend of sinners, and he hung with sinners. But there is a sense in which a leader, especially a pastor in the church, is called to separate himself from these, that is, these dishonorable vessels, these false teachers, if you're going to be usable for God. And there are several reasons for that. Now, I've done this in the course of my ministry. I remember when I first came to Beaufort, for the first three or four months, I attended a ministerial meeting of sorts with pastors from numerous churches in this town. And after about three or four months, I decided I'm not going anymore. And I felt like it was a waste of time and for me, a poor witness. Number one, as I sat in that meeting, I discovered that there were some pastors who believed that we ought to have a woman's right to be able to kill little babies. Now, I happen to believe that from the moment of conception, it is life in the womb, and that if you take that life, you've committed murder. Now, it's not an unforgivable sin. And I know we have scores of people who've been saved out of a background where they lived immorally, where they used abortion as a form of birth control. And what Jesus has called clean, let no man call unclean. God can clean and wash away every blot, stain, and vestige of sin if you've been guilty of that and give you a clear conscience and praise God someday you'll meet that baby in heaven. But when I understood there were some people who had a low view of life, and most of those pastors who had a low view of Scripture, I said, that's it. I am not coming back. And I took criticism. I was told that I was disunifying, that I was uh, you know, not a unifier of Christians in the body of Christ. I want to tell you something, brother. God does not call you to link arms with everyone. Now, I believe in unity. I believe in the high priestly prayer where our Lord said, Oh, Lord, that they may be one, even as we are one, 
that the world may know that thou didst send me, but God's unity amongst his men and his churches are amongst those who are true Bible-believing Christians. So fundamentally, there must be a separation from those who preach false doctrine because when you join arms to those who teach false doctrine, in essence, you give endorsement. Had I stayed in that month after month, year after year, I basically would have said their ministry is just as significant as what I believe, though we believe quite differently. And I would have sent a message of error and I would have given an account to God for it. Now, secondly, not only is there to be purity of doctrine, there is to be purity of life. Purity of life, point B there, is essential to being usable for Christ. Look at verse 22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. A useful human vessel must be holy. And when describing the good versus the bad workman, the true teacher versus the false, he has already said, let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. And now again, he exhorts leadership in the church, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. The overall arching teaching of scripture is that God uses clean people, that God uses what Paul calls in Romans 6, Vessels are instruments of righteousness. If you want to have a life in ministry with God's blessing and God's power upon it, you have to make some decisions as to whether or not you're going to live holy. Now, negatively, he says, flee youthful lusts. The Greek word is fuge, and it means to escape or to seek safety from impending danger. It was used of Stephen when he describes Moses in Acts 7 of, of Moses who fled the wrath of Pharaoh. In addition, it's used of Joseph and Mary who fled Herod who wanted to kill the baby Jesus. In the same way, this verb is used spiritually of fleeing youthful lust because of the awful danger that it brings on the life. We're not to come to terms with sin. We are not to rationalize about sin. We are not to make peace about sin. We are not to linger in Sodom like Lot did. We are to have a holy hatred for sin. We are to make our presence scarce. We are to flee it like Joseph fled Potiphar's wife. Flee youthful loss. Now, positively, he says pursue. And it means the exact opposite. It means to run towards. So on the one hand, we are to run away. On the other hand, we are to run towards. Paul has used himself of this word and another by a verse in the Bible, Jews to Paul, where Paul pursued, he eagerly ran after Christians when he was Saul of Tarsus, wanting to kill them and to persecute them. Now he's using it, having been called of God to be a preacher and an apostle, to use it to pursue righteousness. We are to be in hot pursuit of four things. I have them underlined in my Bible. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And we're not to do it alone. We're to pursue these things with other like-minded believers. Note, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is a command to fellowship with God's people. And if you're listening to me today and you're not in the fellowship of a local church, then you're in disobedience. Listen, as we move towards the last of the last days, our Lord tells us things will not get better, they will get worse. 
And the Bible says we're not to forsake our assembling together all the more, all the more, as you see the day approaching. But I meet these Christians, some who have left their churches because basic truth was compromised and now they're going nowhere. Now, very often that's just an excuse. There's some pet sin, some rationalization where they don't want to obey God and so they found an excuse not to attend church. But understand here that fellowship with God's people is an essential issue. It's a command of God because He loves us and He wants the very best for us. And if you begin to let it slide in your life, you open a door for sin. You become hardened by what the writer to the Hebrews calls the deceitfulness of sin. But understand there's a balance here. As we flee sin, we are to pursue after righteousness. And if we are not balanced, then we will be isolated instead of separated. God wants you to be separated from sin, but not isolated from his people. So as we put these two truths together, we see that on the one hand, we are to run away from spiritual danger. On the other hand, we are to run after spiritual good. You are to flee from the one in order to escape it. You are to run after the other in order to attain it. And this double duty is reiterated all the way through the New Testament. We are to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus Christ. We are to put the flesh to death and we are to take up our cross and follow Him daily. We are to put off what belongs to the old life and we are to put on what belongs to the new life. We are to put to death our earthly members and we are to make alive our new members. We are not to focus on the things of earth but on the things of heaven. There is to be a ruthless rejection of the one in combination with a relentless pursuit of the other. God weds the two together. Now, it brings me to our third illustration. There's the illustration of the unashamed workman. There's the illustration of the clean vessel. Now, finally, in verses 23 to 26, he gives the sixth and final illustration of the chapter, the illustration of the Lord's servant. Notice, let's read those verses. But refuse, foolish, and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Now, the illustration changes once again. The good workman that became the clean vessel now becomes the Lord's bond slave. And there are two things about the Lord's bond slave, the Lord's servant, which you are if you've been saved because you've been bought with a price and you're not your own. Two things that you need to see and I need to see. First, the Lord's bond servant will teach what is right. You are to teach what is right. Again, verse 23, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, and the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. He had to be kind, able to teach, patient when wrong. Timothy, you refuse those foolish and stupid debates and arguments that these men will often lead you into. Where do they come from? They come from man's fallen mind because there are people who have gotten away from the revelation of Scripture and into philosophy and a host of other things that man has dreamed up. 
Now, God in these verses is not giving a prohibition against all controversy. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. The old King James says controversies, but that might be a little misleading in 21st century English. Very clearly, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 4 tells us that this is not a prohibition against all controversy. If you know anything about Paul, and if you've read these pastoral epistles with us, if you've studied the Acts of the Apostles, quite often he was involved in controversy. On one occasion, he publicly confronted the Apostle Peter and opposed him to his face, as recorded in Galatians 2. What he is speaking here is of foolish speculations of people who go beyond the Bible, who forsake the revelation of God for their own foolish, foolish spe fallen speculation. And what they bring is something that is morbid, that is sick, that does not create unity, but only quarrels. Now, he is not to be quarrelsome, kind to all, able to teach. Why? Because only then will you focus on the majors. If you get caught up in arguing with all the cults and all the liberal theologians about all their weird, wacky doctrine, you'll never do what God has called you to do, and that is to help fulfill the great commission of Jesus Christ. So number one, you need to make sure you teach that's what is right. Number two, the Lord's bondservant will correct what is wrong. You ought to correct them, not just any old way. Remember, you can win an argument and lose the person. You do it in gentleness and kindness, but nonetheless, you correct them. Now, he's dealing, understand, not with the kind of correction that Jesus gave in Matthew 21, where he said seven times over, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. Dealing very straightforwardly and hard. Those were people who had totally forsaken the truth. Here he's dealing with people who are actually, they've come into the church under the umbrella of Christianity. And he wants, if at all possible, to win them. And so you've got to hold the tension here, Timothy. On August the 17th, we had, I didn't know it, five Mormons sitting here in our service. And I was told that while I was gone... They came back on a Wednesday night in uniform, white shirts, elder badges in the Wednesday evening service. One even stood up and prayed. Now, as your pastor, I want to warn you because I think they're going to come back. I've already spoken to them on the telephone. And on one hand, I'm glad they're coming, okay? Um, you know, wouldn't it be a great testimony if someday one of these Mormons would stand up and say, you know, I went to an evangelical church to undermine it, but I found Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. God can do that. You know that. But understand, they don't believe what we believe. They do not believe in the deity of our Lord and Savior. They deny the doctrine of the Trinity. They do not believe, though they carry their King James Bibles, that the Bible is absolutely infallible, inerrant. When push comes to shove, they say the Bible has been corrupted and the only thing that you can trust is the Book of Mormon. They do not believe in salvation by grace. They do not believe in a literal, actual, eternal hell in which unbelievers will go. On all of the major issues of the faith, Mormons are not with us. So understand that. Now, the devil is slick. He will package himself as a Christian when he is not. And so we are to approach such people, notice verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps, 
Because sometimes God does. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. If we are gentle with those who oppose us, if we stand for the truth, if we do not compromise the truth, if we don't fight with them, some of them will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Look at verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So on the one hand, these false teachers are lost and they need to come to a knowledge of the truth. On the other hand, their lostness, their blindness is symptomatic, the Bible says, of the snare of the devil. And from that, they need to be rescued. This is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual war. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of God who is in the image of God. The devil blinds men's firm truth and only God can open their eyes. We wage war not just against people, flesh and blood, but principalities, evil forces that are at work in high places, only God can open their eyes that they may come to their senses, literally, to become sober because they've been under the intoxication of the devil. The devil, like a hunter, has set his trap and he's baited it and they bit. And now they're under the intoxication of the evil one. And so that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive to do his will. Now, let me leave you this morning with three applications that I want us to think and pray about and by God's grace to put into action. Number one, the Christian who is useful to the master knows the word of God. The Christian who is useful to the master has to know his Bible. Now, if you know Jesus Christ this morning as your Savior, you're beloved. Verbally, God says... You are beloved, that's an action verb. In noun, he says, you're a member of the beloved. God loves you. He has credited to your account a new position. You have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You can do nothing to improve your standing before God. You can't do anything to make God love you anymore. You can't do anything to make God love you any less. He loves you, period, because you are in Jesus Christ. You have a new position. You are beloved of God. But understand that while God loves you, John 17 says, as much as he loves his own son, while all Christians are beloved, not all Christians. Christians are approved. Now think this through with me. The Word of God is the instrument, you know, that the Spirit of God uses to bring about conversion. No one in any era, in any point in biblical history, in human history, has ever been saved apart from the Word of God. No one. Even before the Bible was written, God gave His Word in different forms. Sometimes through visions, through direct encounters, and those people in turn, like Abel, who was a prophet of God, would preach it, and, and others like Moses, it came in written form as it is today, but faith has always come from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to awaken faith in the heart. You've been born again, Peter said, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God. And some of us have such a minimal influence when it comes to bringing lost people to a saving faith because we have such a casual knowledge of Scripture. And so if you have a casual knowledge of Scripture, 
you can expect a minimal influence in terms of bringing the lost to Christ. Now, that's conversion, but then there's discipleship. And in the same way, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God. Peter goes on to say, Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the Word, that by it, by the Word, you may grow in respect to your salvation. And again, some of us cannot help our own children, our wives, those that we work with that know Jesus Christ, and disciple them in the things of God, again, because we have a very casual relationship to the Word of God. You want God to use you? You want to meet Jesus Christ in heaven and say, well done, thy good and faithful servant? You want to be not only beloved, but approved of God, an instrument in the hand of Almighty God? Then begin to get into this book. And there are many entertainments and allurements in this age in which we live that will get you into everything else but this book. And so the Christian who is useful to the master knows the word. Second, I learned from these verses, the Christian who is useful to the master lives holy. It is only as we cut a straight path and do not swerve that we are approved of God and need not to be ashamed. But it is equally true. It is only as we purify ourselves by the choices that we make, by holy living, that God can use us. Now, none of us are sinlessly perfect. But I want to ask, if someone looked at your life this morning, what would be the tenor of your life? Would they say, that is a holy man, that is a holy woman? Now, people make fun of that today. Oh, he's a holy Joe. Listen, God calls his people to be holy. And you may be 10 years old, but you can begin to make choices of holiness. Now, think with me again. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to bring about conversion and he uses the word of God to bring about growth. How does he do that? Through his servants. The spirit of God living in you. He doesn't come down as a cloud and just descend on you. Friend, he works through a clean vessel. A vessel who is filled by which the spirit of God can speak his truth to both a lost world and to his people. And so if you are not clean before the Lord... You're not usable. Now, if you're dirty today, you don't have to be. You can leave here clean. If you've never been saved, you can be saved today. The Bible says today is the day to be saved. You could not be saved today if it were earned, but because it is by grace a gift received in faith, God can save you today. But if you are saved already and dirty and under the guilt of sin, you can take the Christian bar of soap, 1 John 1, 9, apply it to your life. God can cleanse you from all a devil all filth, all unrighteousness, and you can walk out of this building with this being the first day of the rest of your Christian life. But God uses holy people. C.T. Studd, the famous 19th century missionary and medical doctor to Africa, whom God used in a powerful way, repeatedly would say to his people, the world has yet to see what God will do through a man completely yielded to him. Dwight L. Moody read those words and he said, Oh God, let me be the man. Let me be that man. Is that the prayer of your heart today? Oh God, let me be that man. Let me be that woman. Let me be that boy. Let me be that girl. Let me be completely yielded to you for your honor. Third and finally, I'm reminded that the Christian who is useful to the master majors on the majors. The true servant of God 
is not caught up in speculative things that God has not spoken about and addressed. You know, I meet Christians who in their Bible study, they're trying to figure out what ten nations on the ten toes of Daniel's beast are pictured. I don't know. Nobody knows. And you won't know until Jesus comes. Friend, God didn't reveal that in Scripture. But while they can get into issues that God doesn't even speak about, basic issues of how to walk in the Spirit and be filled with Him and being able to explain that to others, they're at loss. That's why we have the discovery class in this church. Because we major on the majors. If you just knew the material that was in the discovery class and had it mastered in your heart and life, it would change your life. And God could use you in a powerful way. And perhaps God would use you even to bring people who are captured by the snare of the devil into a true and real knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's stand together for prayer. Father... I thank you today for this portion of Scripture that you've given us the opportunity to study. Thank you that we can be unashamed workmen if we are willing to live lives by which we will study the Word of God and apply ourselves. Father, we pray that things that are keeping us from that, that are distracting us from that, would be shut out, that we would begin to make practical decisions this day that would allow us more time and freedom in this book. We recognize, as Father, that you use a holy vessel, a clean person, someone who is set apart in holiness. Help us to be those people. And Father, I pray today for someone who is here and they've never been saved. They don't have the assurance that if this were their last day on earth, that you would take them to heaven. Father, I thank you that you've done it all, that Christ didn't miss a single one of my sin or theirs either, that he bore everyone in his own body on the cross. You said in your word, if one could be saved by good deeds and your son died for nothing. But I thank you that he didn't die for nothing, but he died for us. And I thank you, Father, that you can promise that whoever will call upon his name today can be saved. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know if you're saved, if you don't know if you're going to heaven, then the only thing between you and heaven is an act of faith. Everything has been done. The price has been paid in full with the blood of Christ. But you must in humility... Come and believe what God said. Now, the Bible says God cannot lie. It says it is impossible for God to lie. Faith says, God, I believe what you said. And in faith, you say, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe you've done it. Have you ever done that? Would you do it right now? Come as a helpless, broken sinner in need of a Savior. Now, Father, take the message. Seal it to our hearts today. To the honor of your Son, we ask, and in his holy name, amen. To listen again to today's study entitled, Useful to the Master, call us toll-free at 877-787-7478 and request message 2TM5. It's available on CD or DVD. You can also reach us via the Search the Scriptures app or by visiting us online at searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy looks at the last days. Join us then as we search the scriptures.